We've seen how Edward Earl of March bounced back from the despair of his father's defeat and death in the winter of 1460. Through his sheer force of personality and his military prowess, he had dragged the Yorkist cause back to its feet and managed, very much against the odds, to defeat the majority of the English nobility at the bloody battle of Towton. Edward had been acclaimed as king in London and had effectively sealed his crown by the victory at Towton. But he was by no means universally accepted as king. There were essentially two reasons why. Firstly, King Henry, Queen Margaret and Edward Prince of Wales were all still very much alive. So the Lancastrian cause still possessed a royal figurehead, a passionate champion and a male heir. Secondly, the dispute had gone on for so long that some men might now be described as die-hard Lancastrians. They were utterly committed to King Henry's cause and only his death or theirs could put a stop to their intransigent opposition. So, though Edward had defeated his enemies and nominally controlled the kingdom, he still had some work to do before he could rest a little easier on his new throne. Edward remained in the north for long enough to establish his control and, incidentally, to execute the serial escapist, the Earl of Wiltshire, whose luck had finally run out. Then he headed back to London. After all, he had a coronation to arrange. He also needed to enshrine the Lancastrian defeat in parliamentary law by passing attainders against the leading rebels. Some men would have to be punished. But in general, a feature of Edward's kingship was to build bridges with former Lancastrians. He recognised that the weakness of his father's position in the 1450s was its narrow base of support, and thus Edward made overtures to several influential enemies in the early years of his reign. Of course, some enemies would never be reconciled, and though on the one hand Edward wore a rather fetching kid glove, on the other he used a much uglier mailed fist. The most difficult areas of the kingdom to control were always the far-flung parts the North, Wales and the South-West. Of these, the North had always been the most dangerous, because, as we have seen, it was far enough away from London that local lords, like the Cliffords, the Nevilles and the Percys, could basically do what they liked. After Towton, the heartland of Lancastrian opposition lay in the Percy lands. Who better, then, to employ the new king's mailed fist than their arch-rivals, the Nevilles. Rooting out lingering Percy opposition was a task tailor-made for the Neville brothers, Richard Earl of Warwick and John Lord Montague. If there were to be problems in the north, it was inevitable that the Scots would also be involved. Not only had cross-border raiding been a way of life for the folk on both sides for hundreds of years, but King Henry had taken refuge in Scotland after Towton. Whether the Scots offered any support to Henry or not would clearly have some impact on how much resistance he could muster against Edward.
At this point it may be helpful if we take a brief look at what was going on in Scotland. The King of Scotland during the 1450s was James II, who was himself no stranger to royal family power struggles. By the mid-1450s he felt secure enough to embark on raids into England, hoping to take advantage of English divisions. In 1460, after the Battle of Northampton, he decided to strike hard at one of the few remaining English-held strongholds in Scotland, Roxburgh Castle. There he took a strong army, bristling with the new military technology of the age, the cannon. It was that weapon, however, which brought about his downfall, as he happened to be standing close to one which exploded whilst being fired to celebrate the arrival at the siege of his queen, Mary of Gelders. A chunk of cannon cut deep into his thigh and he died very shortly afterwards. Roxburgh Castle fared little better as Queen Mary later had it pounded to bits. James II was succeeded by his eight-year-old son who became James III. The point of this little diversion into Scottish history is to observe that at the very moment when King Henry was looking for help, the Scots had a minority government. As is often the case, such interim governments are made up of folk who disagree about policy, and so it was in 1461 when Henry VI came calling. The Scots themselves were divided about what to do. The result was that in order to get any help at all from the Scots, Queen Margaret had to make them an offer that was just too good to pass up. So in April 1461, the desperate Queen gave them the towns of Berwick and Carlisle, which were the key fortresses at the east and west ends of the border. Though Berwick was handed over, Carlisle put up a fight and was never taken by the Scots. All the same, Edward could hardly ignore the danger signs and decided to move forward his coronation to allow him to deal with the problem. The fact though that he did not rush north probably has everything to do with the effectiveness of the Nevilles in strengthening the border and suppressing various pockets of Lancastrian resistance. However, Edward had other problems because an ally of Margaret in Normandy, Pierre de Brezé, decided to attack the Channel Islands. Now you might wonder why that was important, but remember that Lancastrian support in the southwest had been strong, and from Jersey, Brezé would have been well placed to support a Lancastrian rising in, say, Cornwall or Devon. However, here again Edward had a bit of good fortune, because in July 1461 the French king Charles VII died and his son, Louis XI, was, temporarily at least, more well disposed towards the Yorkist king. De Brezé was therefore recalled, though the threat of a French invasion would re-emerge several times later on. In England itself, Edward was quite slow to establish his authority, and if you think about it, this was not that surprising, because for about 35 years or more, Henry VI had been the anointed and undisputed king. For most people, 
Edward was a completely unknown quantity. Who was this young 19-year-old whippersnapper who said he was now king? Aside from any difficulty the bulk of the population might have in realigning their allegiance, there were also plenty of individuals who were happy to take advantage of any chaos, administrative or legal, to promote their own interests. So Edward had to do what kings had done for centuries. He had to go on the road. He had to show himself to as many of his subjects as possible. We're not talking here about your average ploughman, but influential local knights, gentlemen, merchants and such like. He had to dispense law and make decisions in local areas to demonstrate that he was in control. In August 1461, Edward therefore set off from London, accompanied by, amongst others, his best friend and ally, the newly promoted Lord William Hastings. He progressed through several of the counties of southern England, from east to west as far as Bristol, and then north into the familiar territory of the Welsh Marches, and then back to London via the Midlands. In the meantime, he set up a campaign to destroy Lancastrian power in Wales, where the loyalist Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, and Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter, amongst others, held several key strongholds, including Harlech Castle. We've mentioned Henry Holland before. Like Jasper, he was related to Henry VI, but he was a good deal less effective than Jasper. You may remember he was the one who scuttled away from Warwick in the Channel. A successful Welsh campaign was led by two up-and-coming Yorkists, Lord William Herbert and Lord Walter Ferrers. They defeated Jasper Tudor and the Duke of Exeter, leaving, by 1462, only the castle of Harlech in Lancastrian hands. And on its own, that was not much more than an irritation. But what about the north? There, matters were not really resolved. Warwick had been given virtually a free hand in the region by being appointed warden of both the east and west marches. In September all seemed to be going well when the main Percy stronghold of Annick Castle surrendered, and then Sir Ralph Percy handed over the great fortress at Dunstanborough. However, Edward decided, surprisingly, to hand Dunstanborough back to Ralph as part of his policy of reconciliation. Then, only months later, Annick was recaptured by the Lancastrians. It was, as it still appears now, a rather fluid situation, and was likely to remain so as long as there was any Scottish support for Lancaster. Edward placed much faith in diplomacy, scheming with Scottish rebels, negotiating with the French king, Louis XI, and with Duke Philip of Burgundy, in the hope of putting pressure on the widowed Scottish queen, Mary of Gelders. But was he successful? Mary paid for Margaret to go to France to see Louis XI, but was that to help her or to be rid of her? Rumour had it that Margaret's general at Towton and fellow exile, Henry Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, had seduced the Scottish Queen, but then such stories seemed to follow him about. Certainly, while Margaret was absent, seeking support in France, during the summer of 1462, 
the Yorkists gained more success in Northumberland. But then, upon Margaret's return in October, Lancastrian fortunes improved again, bolstered by a little, but only a little, French support in the form of several hundred men led again by de Brézé. Pausing in Scotland to pick up Henry VI, the Lancastrians landed at Bamburgh, which surrendered at once. Ralph Percy at Dunstanborough then returned to the Lancastrian fold, and Annick was besieged and swiftly capitulated. In a few short days, Margaret had regained the three great Percy strongholds and raised the royal standard again in the north. So it seemed that the Lancastrian cause was not so dead after all. <laughs>